Hello and welcome to Brain Chat. I'm Dr. Mitzi Joy Williams, your board certified neurologist and MS specialist, and I'm on a mission to engage, educate, and empower those affected by MS to become an active part of their healthcare team. Here on Brain Chat, we'll be talking about neurology, we'll talk about MS, health and wellness, and we'll even throw a little bit of music and music therapy in there as well. Thank you all so much for joining us and stay tuned for the next episode. Happy Monday and welcome to Brain Chat, friends. It is Dr. Mitzi, your board-certified neurologist. I am so excited to be here with you guys on this wonderful Monday, pre-Labor Day uh, holiday, uh, Monday night. So we have got an action-packed, exciting episode coming up today. Um, We're talking about MS in the Hispanic Latino or the Hispanic Latinx community with uh, some of my favorite nerdy neurologists, Dr. Liliana Amescua, and hopefully Dr. Ankel Chinea will be able to join us, uh, but um, he's running a little bit behind, uh, so we'll hopefully have him join the podcast as well tonight. Um, hopefully our friends and colleagues in Louisiana are safe with Hurricane Ida. So definitely uh, praying for them, uh, for those who evacuated and those who are there, that everybody's safe. All right. And I am going to introduce our guest and get this conversation and get this chat started. All right. So we've got Dr. Liliana Amescua, who is an associate professor of neurology and the fellowship program director at the University of Southern California, Keck. School of Medicine. She got her BS degree from the University of California, Irvine, and her medical degree from Jefferson Medical College in Philly, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She did uh, neurology residency and training at uh, USC, and she also has a Master of Science, uh, which she received from USC. Um, She is an amazing neurologist that does so much for the community, an advocate for decreasing health disparities. Um, She serves on many steering committees, um, and She's on the Spanish editorial board of the Brain and Life magazine, uh, which is a magazine that is published by the American Academy of Neurology. She also is an amazing researcher. She does so much research, y'all. And she is currently examining the relationship between social determinants of health and healthcare access and utilization in Latinx uh, people with MS. So let's welcome Dr. Amescua. Hi. All right. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, Mitzi, for having me. Absolutely. Welcome to Brain Chat. Okay, so we are going to chat it up. And this is an extremely important topic, near and dear to your heart as well as mine. Um, And so I'm really excited to talk about this on the show. We've done some um, episodes where we've talked about MS in the Black community. We've talked about underserved populations, but we have not specifically talked about MS in the Hispanic Latinx community, um, which is extremely important, um, not only because there are many people who fall under this umbrella of what we describe as Hispanic Latinx, but there are also many people who are Black who also identify as Hispanic and Latinx. So um, I think this is extremely important and I'm ready to get right into it. So why don't we start by you telling us just a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into this space, Dr. Sure. Well, I'm Liliana Mesqua. I myself am Hispanic slash Latin, Latino X, Latin X individual, uh, first generation here in the United States, and really proud to be, you know, one of them. <laughs> and uh, and certainly, you know, when I started my training, I really was focused on multiple sclerosis and a lot of its biology. 
But, you know, when you're right there in the clinic and you're seeing the population, I'm here in Los Angeles and Los Angeles is, as you know, a melting pot. You have mm-hmm. about 65 percent of individuals um, that, you know, claim, you know, sort of uh, designate themselves as Latino as well. And so you end up seeing a lot of Latinos um, in, in, in our MS uh, specialty clinics. And one of the things that I, I saw was that, well, you know, there's. I'm seeing them, but yet, you know, the literature says they don't really get MS, you know, maybe 50% less risk, but yet, you know, it seems like I have a lot of them to see, and I don't know what would be the best tools to take care of them. Uh-huh. And uh, and so certainly that's how it started, you know, sort of this interest in trying to better understand, sort of like you, you know, it's like, what is known about African-Americans with MS, same thing with Latinos. There was not much back, you know, more than 10 years ago when I when I looked up the literature and eventually right. that's how we ended up connecting. It is. Uh, and that, that paper that we were a part of, you know, was very eye-opening, typical. right? With Dr. Yeah. Um, the late Dr. Omar Khan, yeah. where there were like, what, a hundred and something articles about MS and Black people. And there were like 20 or 25 in MS and the Hispanic Latino population. And of course, you have exponentially increased that uh, with the work that you have done, but there's still is a lot of work to do, you know, and um, I have the same issue. I'm looking at my lobby. I'm seeing people and mm-hmm. the people that I'm seeing are not the people that I learned about in the textbook or learned about right. in training. Um, right. And so we have to find a way to kind of bridge that gap and, you know, uh, fix that disconnect so that we can really serve the people that we're seeing on a regular Absolutely. basis. Absolutely. And I think the word is here, you know, is that there's a lack of and uh, and we want to connect. And that's why yes. we're here wanting yeah. to make connections with you guys uh, and everyone, you know, what's the best way, what would you like to see in your MS care, in your journey uh, right. with this chronic disease? How could we best serve you? Absolutely. Now let's get into this understanding of Hispanic versus Latino versus Latinx. I've even had some of my friends who are Hispanic, like, what does Latinx mean? So (laughs) let's talk about what these terms mean kind of culturally or ethnically and, and, and how do we distinguish those terms and how, what, what group of people are we referring to? Right. Right. So when we say Hispanic, um, or Latino, so Latino is grabbing anybody of a Latin, um, you know, almost back to linguistic, you know, it's a Latin based language. So if you want to be all encompassing or, you know, grabbing everyone, you're going to include even Italian, but you Mm -hmm. shouldn't, right? Right. But the Latino will grab anybody from Latin America. And then the Hispanic, it has an origin of the Spaniards. And so Mm -hmm. it goes back to that sort of designation. And so Over the years, you know, uh, and it came down to a census issue where the United States was trying to determine how many individuals are coming from these regions. And it started, you know, giving the names. And so so in research, we tend to sort of slash it because, you know, which term should we use? I think the Latino one is is a little bit more of, you know, uh, it's going to be able to to grab individuals from Brazil that don't necessarily have a Spanish language. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but the most important thing is what do you as an individual, you know, associate yourself with? 
Um, and uh, and so what it comes down to, you know, and we say it often, it's the social construct. Who do you, you know, who do you associate with? With what name is the best one? Now, Latinx is is not necessarily a new new word, but it's becoming a little bit more popular. I just mm -hmm. recently saw like a poll. I think it was from the Hispanic Pew uh, poll saying that only about like less than 10% actually associate themselves with Latinx. So it's not yet a very popular one, but I think mm -hmm. the X is just saying, it's like, okay, now we're going to be gender uh, non-discriminating and it's not mm -hmm. Latino or Latina, right? Because mm -hmm. Spanish uh, language is, is a lot about, um, you know, uh, putting a sex to the word, right? Mm -hmm. And so now mm -hmm. you're adding the X. Um, mm -hmm. But in any case, I think, you know, from from this issue is that it's a complex word to define an individual. And then if we get to the genetic ancestry, right, mm -hmm. then you now have this issue of like, oh, we're dealing with ancestral backgrounds from Africa, right, from Europe, right, um, and from, you know, and then the indigenous or Native American mixture, uh, which give, you know, sort of um, gave rise to to what a Latino is, um, mm -hmm. if you want to say that. Um, but um, and then, of course, you know, like you said, there is uh, Latinos that are black or have a greater, you know, background of African ancestry, and so mm -hmm. they consider they're self-identifying with as black Latino, mm -hmm. um, which you know, in the United States, it seems like it's about you know, total fifteen percent of Latinos. Or at least so far, you know, when when you pull it, um, so yeah. So I think it's just a, a complex, you know, um, type of designation. But it comes down to what do you want to be referred as, right? Right. Right. I, I don't know how. I mean, maybe it's a little bit same and uh, from you know deeper for African American or yeah. or black or yeah or white or black Caribbean because yeah. we have that too, right? Yeah, and I think it's so interesting because um, one of the difficulties, especially when we talk about things like the clinical trials and the research that we do, is that we often try to force people to check one box, right? Um, so if you think about um, many of the different um, the mixed ancestry, right? Which box are they going to choose, right? If someone is mixed race and they are white and Caucasian, you know, white and black, which box are they going to choose? The black box, but how, you know, and if they are also Latino and black or Latino and, you know, so I think that we have to find, um, you know, the best way that we define it right now is what you identify with, but, you know, we have to find more concrete ways to try to make sure that we are, um, encompassing, you know, more than just one box, especially when people identify with, with several different backgrounds. I do agree with that. I, I do think so because, um, it, you know, it's sort of, like you said, there's a lot of now mixture between races and ethnicities and, mm -hmm. you know, and the current classification is not getting everybody. It's I not. mean, we ourselves also, right. We've seen in our studies is like, we put them under a bucket of other, uh, mm -hmm. But because, like you said, it's like, well, which one did they identify themselves? If they identify with both, what do you do? Yeah. Uh, so there has to be better methodology or we just need to explain the methods that we did mm -hmm. and then say for the purposes of research, right, um, which methods we did and, um, and, and use that. 
So speaking of genetics, let's talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done um, with your registry, um, with uh, collaborating with Dr. Chinea and others, um, looking at different Latino, Hispanic populations and kind of their backgrounds and how that may affect um, different aspects of their MS. For instance, when I think about doing Ancestry, I remember I did Ancestry.com not too long ago. And so this is a sidebar. Many people in the Black community think that they have some type of Indian or or Native American background. And Mm -hmm. my mother was very disappointed to find out that mine was very, very, very very small, <laughs> like <laughs> minuscule. She's like, it's not right. That's not right. You're a great, great grandmother. You know, so when we break it down to more of a genetic level and not looking at it in terms of like phenotype, what we look like on the outside or what type right. of music we like or grew up with. Tell us a little bit about some of that information and how that may affect um, some of the outcomes that we see with MS in the Hispanic Latino population. Right. So, so meaning genetic variation, how did it come to be, right? Yeah. At least in the Americas. And so we think about populations that intermixed, right, coming from different regions. So it's representing, you know, this variation across time, but also across geography. And so, you know, you think about, oh, who left Africa and blah, blah, blah. And that's how you end up and then coming to the Americas. So um, so when we, you know, when I was thinking about MS was that, you know, we have a complex disease where so far, you know, all this data has suggested that um, there always seems to be specific uh, regions in the world where there's less MS, for example, mm-hmm. in Africa. Um, and then there's also protection of these populations if they, you know, perhaps move at a certain time and age, right, to areas where there's high prevalence, they or where there's a lot more MS, they um, develop MS depending on the age, um, you know, either they get more propensity to get MS um, if they're younger, right, when they moved, or maybe they'll still be protected from getting it. So something about them, right, um, is being protected. So that means that there's probably some genetic aspects to the protection of MS, but also the development. And certainly from, mm. you know, MS and whites, you see, you've, you've learned of certain uh, genes that are important, right? And mm. giving you that risk. And so with that, uh, well, I was thinking it's like, well, the Latinos are like the perfect, you know, sort of, you know, perfect storm of three variations. And, you know, is it the the factors that we're seeing in them, meaning presenting with MS at a younger age and presenting perhaps more optic neuritis, which was sort of like this, this um, thought that is more of an Asian, you know, um, uh, phenotype. And so, right. um, and knowing also that the Latino of Mexican background has a different variation in their ancestry proportions compared to somebody in Puerto Rico. Right. So the Puerto Rican is estimated to have a little bit more African background mm-hmm. um, because of the migration that happened, right, and settlement. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the Mexicans, uh, it's thought to have a little bit more of the Native American mm-hmm. or indigenous background. Mm-hmm. And so first things that we did was sort of accumulate, right, try to get as many individuals that wanted to participate and self-identify themselves as Latino or Hispanic. Mm-hmm. Um and together with Puerto Rico, Angel Chinea, who hopefully mm-hmm. will come on, um, and also University of Miami, um, 
and also UCSF. So really four areas all over the United States. Uh -huh. uh, we got about a thousand individuals to participate. Wow. That's probably like the largest Latino, you know, um, study in MS. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. A thousand, over a thousand patients with all their clinical data mm -hmm. and genetic and blood sample. Yeah, um, that's I mean, amazing. It, it was really a big effort. And, um, and so we, you know, we looked at their genetic ancestry and, mm -hmm. and sure enough, we could see the variations that were expected. You have the Puerto Ricans, like I said, the Mexicans and Miami uh, background, uh, very similar to what you would expect from those regions. Mm -hmm. And then we looked at their clinical characteristics and then we, uh, you know, try to infer if there was a relationship to their genetic ancestry and some of the features that we're seeing. And, and we did. We found that those that had the highest sort of uh, uh, proportions of Native American had a higher risk of developing optic neuritis. Uh -huh. so, so more Native American, more risk of getting or presenting with optic neuritis with the inflammation uh -huh. in the eye. And uh -huh. the other factor that we saw too is that those that also had more Native American or more African uh, ancestry, their age of starting with MS was uh, younger. It was mm. dropping by, you know, three to five years, depending on what, you know, how much of it, that type of ancestry. So I think that's really interesting. I mean, it's, yeah. it's saying, saying, you know, there's likely some um, genetic aspects to how MS behaves. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is not looking at the risk, but more of like, how it behaves, how it's going to, you know, present younger or present later or mm -hmm. what. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's just sort of the surface. Um, and, and so I think, but it also tells us a lot that, you know, that perhaps, you know, if we do more studies in this population, they would be able to participate, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. About them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, I was going to ask some different questions, but since we are in this vein, let's let's stay right here. Thinking about the importance of diversity in research is something that I talk about on almost every show. <laughs> we talk a lot about uh, diversity in research. We talk a lot about health equity. And so when we think about, you got a thousand Hispanic Latino patients in the U.S., and that's with three major centers, right? Um to participate in this study. What types of things did you do to reach the community or were there different ways or methods that you use um, to get people to participate? And what was the willingness to participate? Because a lot of times um, there is this perception that people from um, you know ethnic minority backgrounds or people of the global majority, whatever you want to call it these days, um, don't want to participate. So how did you get people involved and what was the outreach to, to get those types of numbers involved? Yeah. Excellent question. So, you know, going back to it and, and again, it's been, over, you know, over years, right. We had accumulated, everybody had sort of this registry Our mm -hmm. registry, you know, as you know, is some, something simple, you know, as you gather, gather questionnaire. And then we were just asking for one sample. Mm -hmm. And at that point we were promising, it's like, it's just one time, you don't have to see us again, right? Okay. Um, and at the beginning, it, it was a lot of convenience. So meaning if I was seeing them, I was there to talk to them about it. Right. 
And so right. I think it was that relationship um, mm-hmm. I had with my patients and as well as I think, you know, with uh, Chinea, with his mm-hmm. patients, mm-hmm. very intimate. I mean, right. most of these patients that came from my center, and I would say the same for the others, they knew each, we knew each other, right? right. Um, and so certainly I think they gained our trust. And so mm-hmm. I think that's one thing. Um, trust, communication was simple. We're not taking, you know, we're making sure, because I think, as you know, Betsy, and we've done those studies together with the MS Minority Network, is that one of the big things that's still persistent, it's mistrust, right? Absolutely. thinking that they're going to get low quality care after participating or while participating. Right. I think that's so important to make note. And so I think it was a lot of like almost like holding hands. Um, mm-hmm. It's like, hey, it's you know we're gonna we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. Um, um, and then what I've learned afterwards is sort of they want to participate more. They want to know about other studies and how they can be helpful. Mm-hmm. And um, and I almost struggle with this part because I do want to do more, but now we need more funding. <laughs> right. <laughs> you have to have funding to do research. Right, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, um, and how do you, you know, and continuing to engage the community, just like what you're doing, I think it's so, so important. And I think, you know, there was a lot of good efforts and help, I think, from you know, from our partners, from, you know, MSAA, mm-hmm. um, you know, from the National Miss Society. Um, and, but I wish even that we had even more because even I think we, we, we're not, we haven't erased it. We, we need more. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the things I heard, trust, extremely important, right? Um, Also, the messenger is important. You know, living in a world where we know that um, certainly, you know, there are not uh, nearly as many women neurologists as men. And then there definitely are not as many Mm -hmm. women neurologists or neurologists who are from diverse backgrounds. The messenger who delivers that message and is a part of the community um, is extremely important. Um, I think the other piece that is extremely important that you brought out is that uh, once people kind of got their foot in the door and participated in that study and saw the benefits, then they often were like, oh man, this is really cool. Um, I want to do this even more. And so I think, again, we have to break those misconceptions and we have to establish trust and we have to say, hey, this is helping everyone, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. and it is um, important that you were able to look at those different parts of their genetic background, looking at the African part of their genes, looking at the Native American part of Mm -hmm. their genes, looking at the European part of their genes and seeing which parts may lead to certain outcomes. I think one of the biggest questions that we have is when we look at the outcomes that we see, Mm -hmm. and we'll talk a little bit about this in a few minutes, in Black populations, in Hispanic Latinx populations, um, how much of that is caused by genetics, right? How much of it is caused by their background versus how much is caused by social determinants of health and things that are um, more related to health equity, like not being able to get to the doctor, not having access to an MS specialist, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not having access to treatment, um, being able to get to your, um, 
you know, different appointments like physical therapy because physical therapy costs money, you know, so, you know, we can write all of the scripts that we want. It costs time, usually off work, right? And it costs money every time you go, there's a copay, Um, you know, so again, we prescribe all these things, but we have to look at where people are in the real world and how those um, other factors in their real world affect their outcomes. So let's talk a little bit about some of the differences that we see in the Hispanic Latino population versus, let's say, um, the white population. And if there are any similarities that we see between the Hispanic Latino population and the Black population with MS. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the first things that we see as different is that the Latino, like I said, is younger when they develop multiple sclerosis uh, compared to whites. Um, And they're even much younger if they were born in the United States. So mm, why is that? Immigrant differences. So meaning mm-hmm. you know, place of birth plays a role in multiple sclerosis and it seems to play a big role in Latinos as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're dealing with a little bit of a younger population when you compare them to whites. Um, and then you have similarities in some of, like I said, the predominant feature of presentation seems to be optic neuritis, more so for those that have this Native American. Mm-hmm. But perhaps, and, and we didn't test this well, would the more European background be more typical, would it be looking like the typical white MS, where mm-hmm. maybe it's more sensory presentation? Mm-hmm. Um, so optic neuritis being loss of vision in one eye, the other eye affected vision, and then sensory meaning people have numbness and tingling or right. loss of sensation in some exactly. part of the body. Exactly. And so, um, so, but, you know, when you look at outcomes, so meaning, uh, or how much disability they have, how many are using a cane? And you see that, you know, there's a higher proportion of them with higher, you know, more ambulatory disability um, in the Latino as well. Always African-Americans a bit more, right, Um, Mm -hmm. compared to the whites. And so if you're thinking, well, the Latino presents with them as younger and they still have more disability, that means their disability is at a younger age. Mm -hmm. So that means it's going to have a higher effect on their ability to work, right? Mm-hmm. Their ability to go to school. They're just, you know, what happens, like you said, the social, what are their social conditions um, before they got disease? And then now that they have the disease and developing in their early 20s and 30s, you know, where are we going to end up? Right. And so, um, so you know, the social determinants of health is where we live, how we grow, where mm-hmm. we die, where everything, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and unfortunately, and this is for everything, not just MS, um, we tend to practice in a bubble, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're in a clinic, we tell them what to do, and then we don't know if it was executed. Oh, we do find out if it was, if they went ahead and did it, but we don't necessarily understand why weren't they being compliant, right? right. Right. You said, was it a cost issue or was it something else? I mean, right. was it even simply as, you know, the family pressure of saying, oh, that doesn't work. You know, why you take that? Take this right. instead, you know, right. it's cheaper. And it, it cured so many people that I know that have MS. Really? You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people that have MS? Mm, yeah. And then you find out it's a different name of the disease. It's a totally different disease. Like, right. 
you like know, muscular um, dystrophy. Yeah, something totally different. Yeah, and and it probably didn't cure that either. But yeah, so true. So true. You know, so again, it's important for us, right? So when we think about health equity, um, I always, and when we think about increasing diversity in clinical research, you know, there are a lot of moving pieces uh, that need to come together. And there are a lot of us that have a part in improving some of those outcomes. And I think for us as, you know, clinicians, people who see mm-hmm. patients on a regular basis, it's important for us to recognize that when someone doesn't follow through necessarily with a plan, it's not always because they don't want to, right? Um, that there are other influences that we can't just write it off like, oh, that person's not compliant. They don't want to take care of their MS. That we have to dig a little bit deeper to see what are some of the challenges that they're having and see if there are ways that we can address those um, to improve right. their health exactly. outcomes. You know, and then also a lot of people um, from Hispanic Latino backgrounds as well as Black backgrounds have comorbidities, right? They have other conditions like right. diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and all of those things can affect their overall health as well as their MS. Yep, that's right. And we just did a study that just got published. We looked at over, I think, close to 400 patients or so with the Latino background, and we looked at their comorbidity, so that second, you know, that other condition with MS, and, uh, you know, high proportion of them had high blood pressure, a lot Mm -hmm. of high blood pressure. And the more uncontrolled it was, the more likely they were going to be disabled. And so, so that tells you, you know, we also need to do better at uh, making sure they're controlling that comorbidity, that they have a primary care doctor. You know, how many times I ask this, like, so who's your primary care doctor? I say oh, you, one. you, Dr. Amescua, <laughs> you, Dr. Williams. I'm right. like, no, I'm not. <laughs> right, right. So we need to, right. And that's just part of, you know, health literacy too, right? It's like, hey, you need to also have this doctor that looks at as you're growing older, right? What other conditions? And then you also have your MS doctor, me. Mm-hmm. And um, and you need to tell me too, if you have a new diagnosis, right? Right. And you're <laughs> taking new medicine. Yeah. New and I tell people all the time, I'm like, you do not want Dr. Williams looking in your ear. Uh, you know, you do not want me looking for strep throat at the back of your, like, you do not want me doing that. So you need a primary care physician to do those things and to do your regular screenings. You know, as we get older, as you said, there are different screenings we need to do for women. There are mammograms, there are different levels that need to be checked, um, colonoscopies, et cetera. So you need to stay on top of all of that stuff because MS is enough. We don't need any other problems that could potentially be be prevented on top mm-hmm. of the MS. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So other things. Now, there was a study that you did that I thought was really profound. I mean, I, you know, obviously we do a lot of work together. Mm-hmm. You do a lot of amazing work. But one that I now include in every talk that I give about health equity and MS in the African-American population, and that was a study that you did on mortality. Tell us a little bit about what you found in that study because it really just yeah. blew my mind. Yeah. Um, and really brought mind. to, yeah. And it brought to the forefront the gravity of what we're dealing with, right? We're not yeah. just dealing with disability, but we're actually also talking about preventing mortality. So tell I, us a little bit about that. I know. Study. So, you know, of course, you know, we, we wanted to uh, better understand, you know, um, when we think about 
all this data says that, you know, MS, having MS uh, tends to lower your mortality, right? You five to 15 years younger, depending on which studies. And, uh, and here we are in the US and we don't have a good mortality, you know, uh, understanding at that time, right? And mm-hmm. so, um, and we have an issue, right? Is because we don't have really good registries to mm-hmm. be able to understand how many people are dying right. from MS. Um, But the CDC uh, does capture at least looking at death certificates of the causes of of death. Mm -hmm. And from there, we can learn a lot. And so it was the first time accessing this database. And uh, and so we wanted to look at, again, you know, how many people are dying of MS, of Mm -hmm. MS as the number one cause, uh, Mm -hmm. followed by other causes, obviously. Uh, But we only reported on MS uh, mortality. And we wanted to understand by age, by gender, but also by race. And Mm -hmm. so they do capture that. Mm -hmm. And uh, although the, you know, the highest numbers of deaths were in the, in the white, when you looked at by, by sex and by age, you, we were astonished to find that the rates were highest among black African-American males Mm. before age 45. Wow. So, and for the female before age 55, mm-hmm. uh, much higher, you know, higher than uh, the white. And so that was really, really astonishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly just for all cause mortality, usually in the United States, it's the unfortunate truth that blacks, African-Americans are the mm-hmm. highest. And so yeah. we've seen that in MS as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it should, you know, make us think about, is it then, you know, is it the severity of their disease, but also what is leading them to, you know, die at such younger age? Is it the disease mm-hmm. itself? Because, I right. mean, it was MS as the number one cause, mm-hmm. but what is also contributing to that, you know? Right. They're not getting right. their treatment, higher disability, uh, right. you know, um, and then, of course, making sure that, you know, no other conditions that mimic it. Mm-hmm. Um, were in there, um, but but really striking. And so it reminds us like, just from all cause mortalities in general in the US, the biggest contributors to that is a lot of the social determinants of health, you know, things that mm-hmm. are causing health disparities. Right. Um, and what are they in MS, right? Right, right. What are they? If yeah. we give all our African-Americans and Latinos to African-Americans, the same conditions that whites have in terms of access to MS, in terms of timely diagnosis. Right. right? That's a huge issue. Would we see a difference? And Mm -hmm. I think we need to question that because, you know, the index of suspicion to give a diagnosis of MS in somebody that is black or Latino or, you know, or not, not the white is lower. Definitely. And so, and so you already have a higher diagnostic error. Right. Right. right? Yeah. Meaning, you know, that P 
people are late to diagnosis because you really have to have a suspicion to diagnose MS, especially depending on the symptoms, because the symptoms are very similar to other conditions, right? Someone can have numbness in an arm and, Mm -hmm. you know, the doctor could say, oh, it was a pinched nerve. And if the symptoms go away in a week or so, if you don't look at that, yeah, if you don't look at that MRI of the brain, if you don't look at that neck, you won't see the lesions until they have that second episode, which could be five or 10 years later. And all of that time they've accumulated symptoms and they've also accumulated little things over time. I would, I can't believe sometimes some of my 20 something year old patients come in Mm -hmm. and they say, Oh, well, I can't remember anything. I just figured I was getting old. And I'm like, honey, you're (laughs) 25. Like you shouldn't be having memory problems at 25, you know, or, or, you know, they're like, Oh, I just thought I was clumsy. I'm like, you shouldn't be falling like for no reason. You know, a lot of times people blow things off if yeah. they are young and otherwise right. healthy, right. you know, so they're accumulating all that disability. And by the time they're diagnosed, yeah. we're a lot further behind, you know, yeah. the ball um, yeah. because nobody had that suspicion to order that exactly. MRI. Exactly. I mean, so many times just, and you've heard this with the African-American community, it's like, you know, you can't have MS because, you know, you're black. And that was a something that the doctor said, well, guess what? I just had a patient today, same thing, you know? Um, that was Latino and uh, she's gone for over a year, multiple doctors. And, you know, it's like, no, nobody ever said MS. Wow. Um, And so again, we have that issue. So our patients or that population doesn't have MS as, as a possibility, but also our doctors don't have MS in their, you know, in their differential. And so we need to also do better there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as we're kind of getting kind of toward the end of our discussion, let's talk a little bit about what are you excited about? So one of the things that um, has been, you know, both disheartening and encouraging is that with the with the advent of the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been this spotlight that's been shined on health disparities. Everybody's talking about health equity. Everybody's talking about health disparities. I'm sure you get invited to a million panels, just like I do, to talk about these types of topics. Um, And so I have seen a lot of progress and a lot of work being done um, and a lot of work being proposed now that there's this light on health disparities. What things are you involved in or what things are, um, you know, being done in the Hispanic Latino MS community that you're excited about that can improve health equity and improve outcomes? Well, I'm really excited, first of all, like you said, that there is a spotlight now for us. Um, you know, we've been doing this now for so many years. We've I know, I know. Talking to each other. Yes, yes. Sort of, you know, saying it's like there has to be some, uh, you know, resources, more resources for our patients uh, from, you know, literacy, health, education. We've been doing that a lot. Uh, but now we have a spotlight where perhaps there can be, you know, not just funding, but the actual support. Uh, Because in so many cases, it wasn't considered, you know, almost like sexy to do this type of work or discourage. It's not science, but absolutely there is science. You can, you know, build it to better understand mechanisms. uh, Absolutely. Well, of inflammation. Um, So I'm really excited just from the perspective of, you know, of obviously, you know, that the registries are growing. 
um, that there is um, ability to, um, you know, a global trial, right, that we're mm -hmm. both involved, that is yes. trying to, um, to again, understand, um, you know, the, the treatment, in this case, oprilizumab, to see how effective it is in, in, in our particular population, both African-American and Hispanic Latino, uh, but also, you know, sort of excited that, like you said, there's stakeholders, diverse stakeholders that are ready to pour uh, understanding in the social determinants of health. I'm excited right now, we're doing a project with the Bristol Myers Foundation, uh, where, you know, we're trying to better understand social determinants of health as they relate to access to specialty care, right? Mm -hmm. Being a neurologist, how, you know, how, um, how can we connect them? Uh, mm -hmm. But then also not just, you know, describing it, because I think we have a lot of data that uh, obviously supports there is a health disparity, right. but yeah, we're going to describe it still, but then can we put an intervention? Can, right. when, you know, and so, we're going to try to, you know, better understand if uh, having a clinical care navigator to connect them to, you know, specialty care and and be sort of, you know, their liaison constantly. We, right. you know, liaisons and connections and could we have better outcomes for them uh, yeah. down the road? And, uh, and, and so I'm really just excited of, of the fact that there's the opportunity now, right? Yeah. So there's yeah. opportunity for more research. Um, there's opportunity for our patients to be more engaged. Um, and then on the other part that I'm working with is that um, we're trying to better, you know, sort of design the next generation of training for those that want to do health disparity research, and that's the work, some work that I'm doing with the NIH. Um, so that I'm just really excited to see that there's a commitment yeah. at the national level, at the institute, and and then we need individuals with policy making. Yes, we definitely need some laws on our side. Right, we need lobbyists. You know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I mean, this is such an exciting time, right? You know, I think that, again, there's a lot of work that we have to do, but there is a lot of commitment. I remember being the person at the back of the room and somebody's like, what topics would you like to talk about? And I'm like, minorities and MS. And everybody's like, uh, I don't want to talk about that. Well, you, you know, know so, <laughs> that, so most people I want to do um, health disparities has been, you know, us like the underrepresented minorities, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's dear to our heart. Right. And, um, but we need to see more, even if there are not minorities, right? Everybody right. needs to know, Everybody uh, needs you to know, know, and where do we start? Uh, yeah. This is in general, you know, we got to start really low at middle school, probably, Yeah, you know, letting our children know that this is important. That what is the health disparity as they're learning science, right? you know, right. Um, right. and what contributes to that? Right. Amazing. Amazing. Well, you know, um, what we'll do is we'll take a little pause for the cause. If anyone has any questions, please feel free to drop them in the chat. Um, I see some comments. People are saying, you know, that this is interesting information that is very informative. 
Um, and so we're glad that everyone who's logged in is logged in. If you have any questions um, pertaining to this topic, um, you can drop them in the chat. Um, but as you said, uh, Liliana, I'm super excited about much of the work that's being done, the research trials. And I think, again, the important key, as you said, is having not just those of us who are part of these communities and passionate about it because we're part of the community, but having the broader community become involved. And that's all the way from the people in clinic to those who are designing the clinical trials, to those who are mm -hmm. funding the different types of research, um, to those who are you know, approving these medications. Like there's a part for all of us to play in improving the system and making the system better. But we definitely recognize that now is the time for intervention, right? So we yes. described it, we talked about it, we talk about it and talk about it, but now we need to make some moves toward changing things and improving the outcomes for everybody That's living right. with That's MS. Right. And, and when we increase health equity for one group, it improves the overall health of everyone, right? So Absolutely. what if from those genetic studies that we see, we can determine what portions may be related to what symptoms and outcomes that will help everyone with MS, right? right. Not true. just people of these backgrounds. Yeah. Um, and so I think, again, and when we also talk about health disparities, we have, you know, those who live in rural communities. We have other underserved mm -hmm. groups within the MS community, right. those over the age of 55, which the older I get, the younger 55 seems. And I think that's a completely arbitrary <laughs> number. It is not old. Um, I don't know why the clinical trials stop at that age, I, you know. So I think, right. <laughs> you know, but we have many, many underserved groups. Um, yep. Underserved, vulnerable, right. Yes. We're talking here about minorities, but you know, there's many that falls outside of race and ethnicity. So absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, with that being said, I think I see one question in the chat that talked about improving life with MS. Um, and certainly that's something that we've talked about in several of our um, chats and, and podcasts before, you know, and I think, you know, the first thing that everyone should do is talk with their doctor and come up with a good plan um, to speak, you know, a good plan for their overall health with MS and recognize that overall health also affects your MS. But coming up with that plan with your healthcare team is extremely important. So I always direct everyone back to their healthcare team to talk about the best things that they need to do to manage um, their MS. And with that being said, we have wrapped up another amazing brain chat. Thank you so much, Dr. Thank Omeski. You. Thank you for having for joining me. me. It's always yes. a pleasure Absolutely. talking to you anytime. Absolutely. And everyone have a good night. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Enjoy your Labor Day weekend. And I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of their week. We'll see you in two weeks back on Brain Chat.